All right. Good morning, my story family. It's good to see all of you. I missed you last Sunday while we were out, but uh, Dylan held down the fort over here, and Pastor Kale held down the fort over at our Timber Grove campus. I'm going to go ahead and welcome our Timber Grove family as well. Some of y'all may not know, we have two campuses, and uh, the other one's in, in the Heights, and about half the time, Pastor Kale or another one of our uh, members of our preaching team will preach live over there. The other half of the time, they're hearing me sort of piped in live, and so that's the case today. Welcome to our Timber Grove campus. I'm so glad y'all are here. Also, uh, anybody that's joining us online, you're part of the Stories Online campus, and so thank you all for tuning in. If we don't know each other very well yet, my name is Pastor Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at the Story, and for the next 30 minutes or so, I mean that today. It's not a 40-minute one, okay? It's 30 minutes or so. Uh, we're going to talk about um, just Jesus and who he is and what it means for us today. I think some of the most important questions that we ask in life have to do with Jesus and, and really who God is for us. And so that's what we're going to dig into today. Um, if we have one very excited member of our church right now, <laughs> I love it. All right. Love you guys. Don't feel bad. All right. So, um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about that in a minute. But first, first things first, it's Super Bowl Sunday, you guys. So I know it's like the biggest Sunday of the year. I mean, it's like Super Bowl, Easter, right? It's not how it should be, unfortunately. But I know, I know how Americans think, so uh, Super Bowl is a very big deal. I'll be watching it. Who's got the Chiefs tonight? All right, okay. Really excited Chiefs fans. Who's got, what's the other team? The Eagles. Who's got the Eagles tonight? All right, one of you. One person, and, uh, and everybody else has got the Chiefs. We'll see how it goes. Maybe you're going to come out on top there. All right, so uh, lots to follow tonight. First time two African-American quarterbacks have gone head-to-head in a Super Bowl. First time two Texas high school quarterbacks have gone head-to-head in a Super Bowl. Uh, Jalen Hurts from the Houston area and uh, Patty Mahomes from Tyler, I believe, is where he was born. And um, so lots of cool things. Chris Stapleton singing the national anthem tonight. Rihanna in halftime tonight. Um, And both of those things is going to be cool. And uh, then we've also got, you know, the commercials, always the commercials. And tonight, we got Jesus in the commercials. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a big, like, Jesus commercial campaign called He Gets Us, I think. It's kind of, like, mysterious or whatever, but I've watched a lot of those commercials. They look pretty cool. And uh, they bought Super Bowl ads tonight, so I'll be watching for Jesus in the commercials. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about, about, about those commercials. And, and then, of course, uh, all the other festivities and things like that. The blimp, you know, instead of one, there's three, but Biden shot him down this week. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> So no blimps this week. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, just joking. That's a joke. All right. So I don't think the blimp is a thing anymore. Okay. Anyway, current events. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. We're going to dig in to uh, today's message. We're going to talk about the man in those Super Bowl commercials tonight. We're going to talk about Jesus. And specifically, we're going to talk about the four ways people come to Jesus Um, In the story we're going to unpack, and I think it really translates to our lives today, and I want you to think about your life and maybe even why you're here today, or maybe what brought you to Jesus initially, or what's bringing you to him now, and what your motivations are and what that says about you and about Jesus and how he's going to receive you, okay? So we're going to continue this series now. It's called A Physician in the Facts. This is a 22-week series, uh, longest ever at the story, and today is week 11 So we're halfway through uh, this very long series as we explore the gospel of Luke together uh, as of today, uh, halfway through. So Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be, uh, starting in verse 40. Um, This is in your study guides if you have those, uh, or it's in your Bibles if hopefully you have those. 
There's also a Bible in the chair back in front of you. Luke 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So a few different things poured into these first few verses. First of all, this girl, we don't know why she's dying or what she has or if it was a fall or a tragic accident. We just know that she is about 12 on the cusp of, you know, adulthood in that culture anyway, like 13, 14 was marrying age in that culture. And, and this is his only daughter. Jairus is, is a very prominent figure in the first century world as evidenced by his, his sort of title as synagogue leader. So he would have been well-known well-respected and probably loaded, like probably wealthy. Like that's just what we know about these synagogue leaders, okay? And then Jesus, it says he's coming back. He's just returned. We know if you read up, like I always encourage people to find the context in whatever passage you're reading. We know he's returned from Samaria, which was hostile territory. And it was where Jesus had been preaching the gospel, mostly to hostile crowds. And then he jumps in a boat, sails across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. I can only imagine he's uncomfortable. um, He's tired. And if it was me, I'd be ready for a nap. But here Jesus is met with a crisis from this man named uh, Jairus, okay? So what I read from this initially as a church leader, right, um, who's just coming off a capital campaign, I'm like, yeah, I can understand the temptation to want to make Jairus happy, right? It's like Jairus being well-respected and, and, and having money is like, from the flesh point of view, it's like, let's do whatever Jairus needs, no matter how we feel, you know, whether we need a nap or whatever, And yet that doesn't seem to really affect Jesus's motivations. I'm just telling you how a lot of preachers would feel in Jesus's place. Money like Jairus's and respect like Jairus's could have gone a long way for a new upstart rabbi like Jesus and his movement. That's that's what I'm trying to say. But when we look at Jairus, what we see isn't an opportunist. He's not flexing his financial or religious muscle. He's desperate. And this is the first clue we see about how people come to Jesus and the motivations for why they come to Jesus. And this is true for for Jairus in his day. It's true for many people today. You come to Jesus often out of desperation, okay? So there's four ways we're going to be looking at today. And the first one is when you're desperate, you come to Jesus. So desperate people come to Jesus when there's an emergency, like your daughter's dying, or a crisis, like your husband's leaving you, or your wife's filing for divorce and she's taking the kids, or there's a diagnosis that you've gotten from your doctor and it freaked you out, or there's someone that you love who's in deep trouble, and people often will come to Jesus out of that sense of being desperate, right? There's nothing wrong with it, by the way. A lot of people come to church out of some uh, crisis, like people will visit a church. In fact, I find, I don't wanna say more often than not, but a lot of the time, people will come to church the first time because they're going through something. And that should be a reminder to churches and pastors and all of us to to be ready to welcome people with a lot of mercy and care because people walk through the door of a church usually feeling pretty broken by whatever they're going through in life. Like Jairus was desperate. It says he fell to his knees. A man like Jairus didn't fall to his knees. That was a position of utter, you know, just 
humility and humiliation even. It was like what you did when you were subject to someone. Jairus was subject to no one. He was the synagogue leader. And yet he's falling on his knees. He's desperate. And if you've ever been there, you know what it's like to feel like you have no other alternative than to be desperate. And it's interesting how desperate people come to Jesus. They swallow their pride. Their shame takes a back seat. They don't care who sees. They just come to Jesus with their hearts on their sleeves, asking him to help resolve whatever crisis they're going through, right? Maybe, maybe that describes where you're at today. Or maybe it describes where you've been in the past, but I especially want to talk to you if that describes where you're at today and why you're here or watching online or over at Timber Grove, why you're tuning in today. Because you've gotten some bad news or you're barely hanging on or your addiction's out of control or your relationship's over or your job's up, you know, in in doubt. Um, and, And you've come to Jesus looking for help, maybe even as a last resort. I want you to know there's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus that way. You're not in an imposition. You're not putting him out. You're not inconveniencing him or exhausting him. And you shouldn't be exhausting his church either. And sometimes we get sheepish about our desperation because we don't want to be, you know, a, a problem. You're not a problem for Jesus in your desperation. You never are. Look, Jesus was exhausted He had just gotten off a a boat that wasn't a luxury liner, okay? It was a broke-down fishing boat. And and he'd he'd sailed across the Sea of Galilee all night after preaching in hostile territory. Of course he needed some me time, right? But look what he did. He didn't tell Jairus to come back tomorrow. He didn't tell Jairus, not now. Give me some space. I need some me time. Jesus immediately, it says, was on his way. Verse 42 Jesus was on his way as the crowds were pressing in on him. That's just the scene that that the gospel of Luke is painting for us here. So so this story we're reading now, it means a lot to me personally because of the scene that Luke paints for us. Every landmark Luke mentions, like the shoreline in Capernaum, which is where this is, which is where Jesus lived in adulthood, the shoreline, The synagogue and the synagogue leader would have lived near the synagogue. All of that is like 100 yards apart, and it's still there. The foundation of the synagogue mentioned here is still there in Capernaum. When you visit it, if you've ever visited it, you know what I'm talking about. It's all there. It really happened. Jesus walked the earth in the flesh. He was a guy among other guys, and women followed him too, and people really came to him for their real-life problems to be fixed or healed or solutions to be found and And Jairus brought this major crisis to Jesus, and Jesus immediately responded and began walking toward Jairus' house. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. There was a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Again, that number 12 is so interesting. Her bleeding started sometime around the time Jairus' daughter was born, so it's just been 12 years of misery for her ever since. But no one, it says, no one could heal her. Okay, now Mark's gospel tells us that she had gone to many doctors and no doctor could heal her. Luke, being a doctor, like runs cover for other doctors and doesn't throw the doctors under the bus like Mark does. (laughs) He's like, "Uh, no one could do anything. Let's just move on. You know, it's like a really interesting little thing. But it says she came up, this woman came up behind Jesus 
and touched him and touched the uh, edge of his cloak, it says. So the edge of his cloak was like the fringe of his rabbi uh, stole that he wore around his robe that was an identifier that he belonged to the house of David. The fringe was called a tzitzit, T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T, tzitzit, kind of a weird Hebrew word. But it was an identifier and it was sacred and only family members could touch it. Only immediate family members were allowed to touch it. And only if they were ceremonially clean could they touch it, okay? So she touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Okay, let's talk about this woman for a second. She fascinates me. Um, Her story is the story I was taught the day that I became a Christian in Capernaum 10 years ago this month. So it's a very important story to me. Anytime I come across it, I get chills because it's the, it's the lesson my, my guide in the Holy Land went over the day that I received Jesus as my Savior. But this woman is, she doesn't need me to tell you how interesting her story is. She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Now, the bleeding is sort of vaguely mentioned, but it's pretty clear in context that this is a reproductive issue. Okay. So uh, this woman was bleeding from her womb for 12 years straight. This was some kind of a medical condition. I imagine physicians like Luke had seen women who were struggling with this condition. To this day, something like this condition is somewhat common, and it's a very long name. Uh, It's menometroragia. I did my best. Manometroragia, which is described by doctors as a chronic weeping sore in a woman's uterus. And it's like having a monthly period nonstop in heavy and unpredictable ways without the benefit of any modern day feminine hygiene products. Men, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask the woman around you, or just go to the awkward aisle at Walgreens where all the yellow and purple and, and orange things are, and uh, you'll figure it out. So, but none of those products existed then, all right? So we underestimate what a game changer that has been for modern times and modern women especially, and how that helped alleviate at least partially the monthly suffering endured by most women. This woman endured that suffering nonstop without the benefit of those products for 12 straight years. And I can only begin to imagine the depth of her misery. All right? Like, it went deeper than just physical. The physical pain must have been immense and exhausting. But there was a social element to this that was isolating and humiliating for this woman. Like, how do you cover up a problem like this? How do you act normal? How do you have friends in any situation, but especially a first century Jewish situation where bodily fluids were treated like a potential uh, communicable disease agent, right? It's like anybody that had a flow of bodily fluids, any kind of discharge, men or women were quarantined by, according to Mosaic law. It wasn't to be hateful. It was to protect the community. It was to protect the people of God and to keep them, you know, healthy and holy uh, so that they could continue to, you know, live for him and worship him in the temple and in the, uh, in the synagogues, okay? So there's reasons for this, but, but women especially seem to be, 
I don't know, if, if I were a woman, it would feel to me like I'm being singled out when I read Levitical laws about the discharge uh, rules. Now, it's not the case. Men are also called to isolate when they have bodily discharges and things like that, but women with the monthly cycle seem to be um, singled out in a way. But I want you to know, if you ever go back, and I almost read this aloud for y'all, and you can thank me later for not reading Leviticus 15 aloud. You can go back and read it. I just want you to know that even those laws, as archaic as they might seem, were given out of a merciful place in God's heart. Mercy. Because without these laws, then women in those very special, let's call them seven to 10 days a month, would have been request, required or obligated to perform certain social and marital duties that they were required to, to do the rest of the time. This was a, a covering, a protection for them in a way. But in a case like this woman's case in Luke chapter 8, whose blood, you know, bleeding hasn't stopped for 12 years, the isolation never stopped. She lost her family. If she had a family, she lost them. If she had a husband, she lost him. Because not only was she bleeding and isolated, she was infertile. So this woman was alone, and, and she had spent everything she had to try and get better, and nothing worked. And she had no more protection, no more covering. So her state of mind might have begun like Jairus's. She, 12 years ago, she might have been desperate like Jairus, but now desperation has turned into disappointment. So this is the second way I see people coming to Jesus uniquely in this story. It's sort of embodied in this woman, but I see this all the time. People come to Jesus with disappointment. Disappointment's different from desperation. Jairus and his desperation didn't care who saw him, didn't care who laid eyes on him falling on his face before Jesus, right? This woman's situation is, is different. Disappointed people, they don't, they don't come out in the open they don't come out, you know, for all the world to see. Disappointed people sneak. They sneak up on Jesus. When you've had your hopes up and your heart broken enough times and you are pretty sure none of this Jesus stuff is real, you just sort of maybe in a, in a moment of, of last resort, perhaps, you come to Jesus, flying under the radar, hoping just to get a little touch, just in case. That's what I see in this woman. The whole crowd's following him. Everybody's pressing him around him. She's weaving through the crowd just to get a little touch of his garment, just to see what happens. Disappointed people often will come to church or even before they come to church, they'll watch online for months because they just don't feel like it's safe yet to give the church or God their full attention or their full time because they've had their hopes up and hearts broken before. And if this is you and you've been in that disappointed place, first of all, thank you for being here or for tuning in. Thank you for continuing to give Jesus a chance in your life. I want you to know there's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus out of your disappointment. And I want you to know and see for yourself just how Jesus responded to this woman's disappointment. So let's keep reading uh, chapter eight, verse 45. Jesus asked, who touched me? And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In other words, Peter's being snarky. He's like, who hasn't touched you? Jesus, okay? This is classic Peter. So Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. 
And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So this woman's worst nightmare has unfolded. She came to fly under the radar. She probably had her face and head covered, you know, incognito, weaving through the crowd. She's still in her state of bleeding, so everyone she touches is ceremonially unclean too, unbeknownst to them, right? And then she goes and she touches Jesus too, making him ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses as he's on his way to heal the VIP's daughter. He might not even be able to fulfill that mission now because of what this woman has done. Like, Like the whole world now is crashing down around her because she's being outed because of what she's done. Okay, and then she realizes she can't stay, you know, in secret. And so she says, before the whole crowd, it says, she says, yeah, I touched Jesus's garment and I was healed. It's almost like if that can get me off the hook, I'll share that with you. I was healed the first time in 12 years. You know, I am not in pain and I'm not bleeding if anyone cares. She shares her whole story with the crowd and with Jesus. She was terrified, it says. And in her fear, she too fell face down before Jesus, just like Jairus has, but for very different reasons. She was terrified because if Jesus wanted to have her dragged away and stoned to death, he could have for touching his garment, for touching his Davidic line, deep, deep garment, like he could have had her executed. And the mob around him would have gone, away, gone along with it for sure, because she had put them all at risk as as well, okay? But how did Jesus respond to her disappointment? By calling her, did you hear it, what he told her? Daughter. This is special to me because it's the only time Jesus used this word in reference to any person. He never called anyone else daughter. It's not that there weren't other daughters of God around Jesus at times. It's just that he went out of his way to call her, this one, a daughter. Why? I just, I'm blown away by this, but Jesus does two things with one word. By calling her daughter, he both exonerates her from the crime that could be punishable by death, the crime of touching his garment, even though she was unclean and not a family member. When he called her a daughter, he made her a family member and he made sure everyone else here knew she's family. We're good. It's cool. It's fine. No one touch her, right? Protection, like she hadn't experienced in 12 years. Jesus immediately provides cover for her. And he also goes along even further. And she came to him for a healing, right? She came to him for a fix, And he gave her a family instead. Like last week we talked about how, and Dylan preached here and Kale over at Timber Grove talked about how sometimes God fails to meet our expectations, right? That's a weird way of saying it. But sometimes we have these expectations of God and he doesn't meet them. What do we do then? There are other times when we have these expectations of God and he goes on to exceed them. This woman came for a physical healing and she left with both a healing and a family. So with one word, Jesus exonerated her and adopted her. How cool is that? And I want you to know that if you come to Jesus in your disappointment, 
Maybe after years of too many unanswered prayers, unmet expectations, you know, unanswered questions even, or doubts about the Bible or Christians or preachers that did you wrong in the past, I want you to know Jesus can take your disappointment. Not only does he take your disappointment, but he receives it, and then he'll give you more than you ever asked for. That's how beautiful he is. And that's how he changed my life 10 years ago. And that's how he can change yours too. He makes us the same offer that he made this woman then. Come be my daughter. Come be my son. Let me cover you. It's amazing. It's the most beautiful thing that God would have a heart for us this way. So if your situation or your reason for being here today could be described in similar terms with disappointment, I just want you to know there's nothing wrong with coming to Jesus that way either. Uh, Jesus can take it and turn it around. Let's keep reading uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of, I'm sorry, <clears throat> this story gets me every time. <sighs> Let me start again. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. He said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. So the whole crowd that had been pressing in around him, he told them to stay outside, took three of his disciples, his inner circle guys, Peter, John, and James, that often went with him, inner circle style, um, when others did not. And then the child's mother and father went inside the house with Jesus. But that's not all the people that were there because then it says, um, meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. So this is a different all the people. These people are inside the house already. They had been there already, wailing and mourning for the, for the little girl that had died. So who are these people? That's the question that this raises. Uh, we don't really get it. First century Jews in this context would have totally gotten it. And I'll explain in a second. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. That's weird. Read it like in context. They're wailing and mourning one second. And literally a second later, they're laughing at Jesus. All right, what's going on here? They laughed at him knowing that the girl was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. That's classic Jesus there, by the way, at the end. Jesus doesn't come to be a flash in the pan or a fly-by-night, you know, three-ring circus show or act. He came to spread the gospel and die for our sins, and that's, that's his mission with us, right? Not just to be a performer, so he told a lot of people, don't, don't tell anyone what I've done for you here. Okay, so let's talk about these people that were in the house when Jesus and his three disciples and the mother and father of this girl got there. Who were they? It's pretty clear in context that they were a brand of uh, professionals whose job it was to lead the community in grieving when someone died. They, they were professional mourners. This was their job. And uh, this is well known in uh, ancient Jewish literature, not so much in scripture, but 
but you can find little clues of it in scripture, but in other rabbinic texts, it's like, yeah, it's pretty clear. There were people who were paid whenever someone was dying, people who were paid to show up right away and start the grieving and mourning process. They would come and start wailing and crying and sort of as a, a call to the rest of the community to come and grieve, okay? So that's what these people were doing. And I imagine, again, because Jairus's position was so prominent, they maybe showed up a little quicker to this house than most, and they you know, wailed a little louder for this one than most. And, you know, they were performing in a way. And then Jesus showed up and he's like, have faith. She's not dead. It's not over. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. And this laughter is not like, ha ha, you're so funny, Jesus. It's not like that. It's, it's, uh, it's derisive. It's disrespectful. And that's what we see in the hearts of these people toward Jesus is a kind of sarcastic, cynical disrespect that they show Jesus when he shows up to help this girl, okay? Now, let me just, this, this may seem odd, but let me just pause there and say, I've seen a lot of people kind of come to Jesus or access Jesus from a disrespectful place. This is actually the, the third way I see people coming to Jesus in this story and in our life together as a church. Now, what I mean by disrespect or this derision is when someone has a chip on their shoulder or when Jesus represents a threat to their um, preconceived pride or identity or something else that's going on in their lives. And so they will often mock Jesus. They will often uh, make fun of Christians. And this isn't necessarily, this is, I wouldn't say, this is usually people that come to church with this frame of mind, although... I've known one or two boyfriends and husbands that have come to church with their girlfriends and wives in this frame of mind over the years. This is sort of the guy that'll sit back and go, I'm not one for fairy tales, thank you very much. Or the guy that will, or a girl that will chime in on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, you know, videos of sermons or clips of podcast episodes or whatever, and they will go out of their way to make sure they that we know they disagree with us. It's like, it's interesting to me how much effort some people who don't believe put into making their unbelief known. It's an interesting thing to me, and I think it's because people who come with this kind of angst or disrespect are closer to Jesus than they might admit and that we might imagine. And many of the most faithful disciples in this room began from a place of this condescension and disrespect. You're just like, it's not for me. I don't believe in myths. I'm too sophisticated. I'm too grown up. You know, it's not for me. I'm, I'm not uh, one of those uh, opiate of the masses, dependents, you know. And I used to be that guy. That's how I can speak to this. Like, I used to be that guy. I thought I was too smart to be a Christian, too sophisticated to be a theist. And uh, so I sort of lived my life as though I was my own God with my own ideas governing me and my life. Uh, needless to say, it didn't work out <laughs> very well for me. And only when I came to faith in Christ, after years of, frankly, disrespecting him in many ways, did I finally see the light. <clears throat> okay? So now, all I'm saying is, this may not describe you, per se. If you're at church, I would guess you're probably not in this frame of mind, but I'm guessing you know and love someone who is. In fact, after our 8.30 service, someone came up to me and said, in no uncertain terms, as a mother of a 15-year-old boy, she was like, my son is that person, the disrespectful person. He told me this week he doesn't want to do this anymore, church stuff, you know. And 
Like everyone here knows someone who's in this frame of mind. I just want people to know that if you come to Jesus, even in this state of mind, even if you're commenting you know, weird or hateful comments on, on some church's YouTube channel or whatever, it's like Jesus can take that too. If you look at how he responded to the people who laughed at him, people laughed at Jesus and made fun of him as he was about to raise this girl from the dead. What did he do? He could have called lightning down from heaven to smite them. That's what I would have done had I had that power. Smite these haughty laughers, you know? Leave them in ash and rubble, like that kind of, that's my temper, right? Not Jesus. He didn't even make fun of them in return or condemn them even. All he did was go about his business and show them who he is. And I would imagine he hoped that they paid attention because had they decided to follow him that day, he would have welcomed them as a disciple. So, if any part of you or someone you love is in that dark and disrespectful place today, all I ask is that you keep your eyes on Jesus long enough for him to show you who he is and then respond accordingly. Fourth and finally, uh, we have a group of people that are present in this story from start to finish um, that are sort of the, the goal for us all in terms of where we're going as uh, individuals and as a church. And uh, some people come to Jesus out of desperation, some out of disappointment, some out of disrespect in a way, and, and yet there are others who come to him out of a place of discipleship. There are his disciples. Disciples are distinct from any of the other categories of people we've discussed because their relationship to Jesus is not circumstantial. It doesn't matter how their lives are going. When you're a disciple, you follow Jesus when you feel like it, you follow him when you don't. You follow him when your kids are sick and you follow him when your kids are healthy. You follow him when it's sunshine and you follow him when it's raining. You follow him when the chiefs win. You follow him when the eagles win. You follow him no matter what because your relationship to him is bigger than just circumstances. You didn't just come to him because of what he can give you. You came to him because you want him. And y'all know this is our mission at the story and has always been our mission to inspire people to follow Jesus, in particular to inspire non-religious and skeptical people to follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is, is the following part. And some of us have this idea that what it really means to be a Christian is to show up to church on Sunday mornings. It's really hard, though, to follow Jesus around when all you think of in terms of your faith is sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning. There's more is what I'm saying. And even if you come to Jesus out of desperation and disappointment or even disrespect, even if you come to him out of any other, you know, needy sort of place that you might have in your heart, like it's not really important how or why you come to him. What really matters is whether and how you go with him. How do you make Jesus your way of life? He didn't come to be your magician, your magic eight ball, your answer man, or your genie in a bottle. He came to be your leader and your shepherd. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Come and follow me. And so this is the gold standard of what it means to come to Jesus is as disciples who love Jesus and share him with the world no matter what.
That's why over the years, we've shifted so much of our budget and, and resources at the story away from just Sunday morning and putting on the, like, the laser light show and like all this techie stuff that we used to do. And some of you have been around a while, you're like, where'd the fog go? We used to have fog. And I'm like, we, we made some choices, all right? And so it used to be 70% of our resources were Sunday morning driven because we wanted to put on the best show possible. And we realized what we were expending all of our resources on didn't line up with our true stated mission, which is to make disciples. And so more and more, our resources have been dispersed on ministries that happen throughout the week. And if you just access Jesus or the church on Sunday mornings, I want you to know there's more. He's not just calling you to meet whatever preconceived expectations you came with. He wants to exceed those expectations. And that happens only in a place and with a heart that's driven by discipleship. Come and follow me, Jesus said. And I pray your answer and mine today will be yes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder today from your servant Luke and from your ministry, Jesus, on the earth among us. Thank you for your patience with us and your loving kindness and your tenderness with us. Even when we come to you, frankly, just to use you, just to get what we want out of you, you're so patient and kind toward us. Lord, you you not only meet our expectations, but you want to exceed them, Lord, in our relationship with you. Give us courage, God, not just to come to you with our needs, but to follow you with our lives, to make you, Jesus, the center of our life. That's our mission as disciples of Jesus Christ, and we pray that it would be so. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.